TED Audio Collective. I do feel the loss of diversity in graphic form. It's the same as we're doing to the world in natural form, globally in language and cultural form, and in our industry in terms of brand complexity. From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 18 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, Neville Brody goes deep into design trends, social media, and typography. Typography is inevitably a manipulative form because the choice of typeface changes your response to any message. Hey, listener, a quick favor. We are conducting an audience survey, and we'd be really grateful if you could take just a few minutes to respond. Please visit survey.prx.org slash designmatters to take the survey today. That's survey.prx.org slash designmatters. Thanks. Neville Brody is one of the most famous graphic designers of our time. And in the graphic design community, he's a certifiable rock star. In fact, you can say he helped create the rock scene of the 1980s when he famously designed album covers for bands like Cabaret Voltaire, Depeche Mode, Curtis Blow, and 23 Skidoo. He went on to become the art director of The Face magazine in the UK, where his experiments in typography and design dazzled and delighted. His work of the 80s and 90s was collected in two books that became global bestsellers. Some of his work was seen as so groundbreaking that it's included in the permanent collection of the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. A third book, The Graphic Language of Neville Brody III, came out earlier this year. Picking up where his 1994 second edition left off, Neville's latest is essential reading if you want to understand the evolution of design over the last 40 years. And it's also a wonderful opportunity to have him back on the show. Neville's been joining me on the podcast since 2007. Neville Brody, welcome back to Design Matters. Thank you so much, Debbie. It's such a pleasure to be here again. Um, I didn't realize it was so long since we last spoke and since we first spoke. So yes. I think a lot of things have changed in that time. It has. So I want to go back in time a little bit for those that might not have heard our previous interviews. Uh, you were born in Southgate, London, and began drawing before you could even walk. So does that mean you were a young artist or a late walker? I think both, to be honest. <laughs> um, but I always had a creative interest. My father whilst being quite technical um, and engineering-based, was also a kind of inventor. The, the British tend to be inventors. We tend to invent things, and then we tend to then get other countries and other industries to use that and develop it. But my dad was, was a, an inventor. He developed new ideas, and so I was kind of born into that space. And, yeah, I mean, I don't know whether I was walking before the age of five. I hope so. But yeah, as soon as I could hold a, a crayon in my hand, I was I was using it. What kind of things did your dad invent? This I didn't know. Well, he spent his life as a camera technician. 
Um, but during the Second World War, he was based in India, where he was teaching the local community um, how to build radios. But this is something that he self-taught. So he never he never went to school to learn all of this, so he learned everything himself. And eventually ended up running a business repairing cameras and projectors and Super 8 and um, sound machines and had probably one of the first videotape recorders in the UK way back in the 70s and would be constantly inventing new tools, new circuitry, new ideas about how to use cameras. So he always had this incredible inventive, imaginative mind that he allied to his engineering. And I think that's something very much that I've picked up on. You said that you knew you were never going to be a train driver or a fireman as a little boy. So the only decision you had to make was whether you wanted to become a fine artist or a designer. And you stated that the reason you chose design over fine art was because you thought that fine art was a dishonest industry. So I have two questions. In what way did you think that and do you still think that? Well, I think at the time when I was going to art school, art was being promoted as something that was just about culture, as being a very pure form, and that advertising and design were the dishonest forms because they were based on persuasion as well as information. And I felt that that was a dishonest portrayal of fine art, that in fact fine art had had long become a commodity, that it was all about investment, it was all about fame in order to drive further investment. Um, and I felt that that was a very dishonest space where you almost had to have a hit single as a painting mm. or as a painter, and that then that would manifest as further sales, um, bigger shows, uh, larger investments, etc. And I just felt that there was something very dishonest about that, where fine art actually wasn't touching the public. It was a very elite strand of rarefied intellectuals who largely engaged with the art world. Whereas I felt that design and advertising using mass tools would actually reach the public, even though they were set up for very different reasons. And the other thing that I understood, um, my tutor at the time clarified for me wonderfully. He said that if you're an artist, you set your own brief. Mm. And without saying it, he was implying that I needed a brief to be set. So designers, advertisers all respond to briefs that are set externally, whereas artists set their own pace and challenges. And then I took that and ran with it and realised that the challenge I was being set by design and advertising was you need to understand these tools in, in order to reveal them and in order to use them for different purposes. So taking a very fine art approach, which is a questioning one, but applying it to a, a field of mass media. In a very old interview, or actually it wasn't really an interview, it was an assessment uh, that Rick Pointer did of your career and your work. He said that while you weren't a fine artist, you had an artist's self-confidence. And I'm wondering if you would agree with that. I don't know what that is. Um, and I've, and, <laughs> I think it's a I certain think, kind of swagger, maybe. I think I need to ask Rick. I think that's a projection. Um, <laughs> I think Rick has the swagger of an artist as a as a design critic. 
Mm. Um, so I'll figure out what he's talking about there. But I don't know. I think there was a lot of projection going on in design during the 80s that people were thinking of designers increasingly as a kind of as a rock star, as you mentioned. But that was never the intention. That was always, for me anyway, that was always hoist yeah. upon me. I was aware, though, that raising my profile would help create more exposure to the ideas behind it. So my work then became a shop window to the writing and the thinking. And I realized quite early on that actually the most important thing I could do is do lectures off the back of that, um, public appearances, talk to people, and use that platform to try and affect the way people were thinking about communication. So I didn't welcome any of the celebrity kind of positioning, but I felt it was important to use that as a vehicle. You attended Hornsey College of Art, which in 1968 was the birthplace of the first student sit-in, and it had to do with funding. Um, you got there in 1975. Did the school still have a political undercurrent to it? And if so, did it influence your approach to design? Because you've always been, as as you've just said, very vocal about the sort of purpose or stance of graphic design in culture. Um, Hornsey College of Art at the time was a kind of an independent space. And it had lost its line of connection to those early sit-in days, I think that that had been sufficiently or, or effectively suppressed. But I went to Hornsey, I mean, for two reasons. One, it, it had a great creative reputation, um, a phenomenal kind of forward-thinking reputation in terms of experimentation. And at the same time, it was round the corner from where I lived. So it was a, a convenience of provenance more than anything. But it was a great time for me. It was a one. I was, I was there for one year, um, foundation course, and sat next to someone called Mike Barson. And Mike Barson later became the lyricist and keyboard player for Madness, the band. And whilst I was doing the course, he was off seeing punk because punk had just started at that point, and he would come in in the morning saying, I've seen this great band called the Sex Pistols. You have to go and see them. And I just thought that was terrifying. Um, <laughs> Why? An idea. Why did you think it was terrifying? Well, because everything was quite kind of innocent. This was the days of Genesis, Super Tramp, very middle-of-the-road kind of culture that was going on in the early 70s, mid-70s. Um, David Bowie, of course, uh, Roxy Music, of course, mm. King Crimson. But but these were fairly established and unthreatening bands. And then suddenly there was this band called the Sex Pistols that would go on stage, would be spat at and would spit at the audience, would not know how to play their instruments, were were importing violence into into their kind of musical genre. And I rejected it. At the beginning, I rejected it. And then when I went to London College of Printing afterwards in the second year, I suddenly realised what was going on and overnight became a punk. But one thing that became quite clear at the beginning of punk was that there were punks and there were people we call weekend punks. Mm. There was that kind of, you know, real punk and then copy punk. And eventually it got reappropriated by advertising. So the, so the cliché mm. punk... 
um, had all the danger stripped out of it. And it just became a model then that appeared in in advertising and picture postcards of London, um, you know, where you'd have punks and mohawks with Westminster Abbey in the background. So it became very quickly a kind of stereotyped genre. But I was probably somewhere between the two in my last year of art school. I had no income, living in a squat with 100 other people in Covent Garden in the middle of central London. Around the corner was the first Paul Smith store, which was at that time really super radical. I was working in a local restaurant, washing up at night in order to pay for my student fees, etc. And it was probably the worst and the best year of my life. I thought it was, it was amazing. Everyone should squat. Now, when you say squat, do you mean living in a place um, illegally without paying rent or just living in a place that's very low rent? I mean, living in a place illegally without paying rent. So you were, I believe, in the center of a, a collapsing, decaying space. Well, it was actually an amazing building. It was 18th or 17th century townhouse in the middle of Covent Garden. And historically, it was where Nell Gwynn had lived once. Um, so it was a beautiful piece of architecture which had gone to, to rack and ruin because they'd moved the market out of Covent Garden. And I remember one night we had a fire and the roof burnt off part of it. And in order to go to the bathroom, you had to you had to actually use the bathroom in, in three foot of snow. Good thing you're a man. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. Exactly. Uh, it was quite challenging. Um, and at those times, it was politically, London was very different. We had, of course, uh, a lot of anti-immigrant action going on. We had the National Front that would frequently march past our squat. And it was quite a dangerous, edgy time. And this was just before Margaret Thatcher came in. You know, it was the beginning of the period of the miners' strikes. Um, in terms of um, stability, it was it was an incredible period of change and possibility, as well as being very challenging in terms of living a comfortable life. What was your college portfolio like? Well, I thought it was interesting. Um, <laughs> That's not a good word. <laughs> well, I took the, the college briefs and then interpreted them in a way that pushed them further. Um, the college taught that there was one way to do everything. If you did a wedding invite or a theatre poster or a book cover, in the 70s there was there was a way that you did all of this. And we were there to learn how to do it. And the London College of Printing at that time had the reputation for being the most strict, extreme graphic design education in Europe, which is why I went there, because I knew that if I was going to learn about it, I needed to learn the strictest rules, and then I could improvise and use them for different purposes. But my tutors didn't like that, and they didn't like my work, and they tried to throw me out um, on a couple of occasions. In the second year, um, I'd put the Queen's head sideways on a stamp, and one <laughs> tutor took such offence that he actually put in process the uh, means to try and actually expel me um, because of that. And at the end of the three years, my internal tutors failed me. So I had a, an F 
on my degree. But the external assessors gave me a first. So there was an incredible contradiction between what was going on inside art education and what was going on in the real world. And uh, ended up with a 2-2, which is a sort of a mediocre mark somewhere in the middle. But it actually came as a shock to the, the art school. And the tutors following all of this, it wasn't only me, it was a number of other people in my group. The art school had to reconsider everything about the way it was teaching. And it went into a kind of shock. And they did say to me that, that A, I hadn't answered any of the briefs on the course. And B, they said I had zero commercial potential. So, um, thanks, Famous guys. last words. Yeah. yeah. How did you feel about that at the time? Did it bother you? Were you disappointed or upset with the grades that you were getting? I think if they if they had given me a mediocre mark internally, I think that would have been more disappointing. But the fact that they'd failed me felt like a powerful, let's say, catalyst for me to push forwards. And the fact that I was validated by the external assessors, um, really helped. And I had a job the day after I took my showdown. I was working with Al McDowell at Rocking Russian. He had set up Rocking Russian, which was a record sleeve design agency, with money from the band that was an offshoot of the Sex Pistols. With um, Glenn Matlock, right? Exactly. Um that was a great learning, um, going straight from failing my course at art school straight into a job. And I think I was one of the only people that had done that. What I'd realized is that the third year thesis isn't about learning. It's about interviewing everyone you want to get a job with. Mm. Um, so I did my third year thesis on editorial design and went round and interviewed every agency that was doing interesting radical magazine design and got offered a job as part of it. So it's, it's all about using the platforms that you have and being aware of that and not listening to your tutors. Um, sorry, Debbie. No, um, not at all. I actually want to talk a little bit about design education in a bit, and especially with your experience at the Royal College. But I, I do want to ask, was your job at Rocking Russian, the job you were fired from because you weren't apologetic enough for being no, no, late no. every day? Or was that a different job? Um, so my job at Rocking Russian, I was there for about eight months um, or just short of a year. Ironically, Rocking Russian turned out to be the people that designed ID magazine. So if I'd have stayed, I'd have been working on ID and not the face, um, mm. which was – and the face magazine was literally 50 yards around the corner. So it was a very concentrated Soho at that time. There was punk clubs, 100 Club, there was punk stores, and there were these record labels and startup magazines. But they weren't run very well on a business perspective. And I remember at one point, um, it was all hand-to-mouth, and I hadn't been paid for eight weeks, and it didn't look like I was going to be paid for a lot longer, and realised I had to get a job where I could survive. So... I applied for a job at Stiff Records, which was then a crossover from kind of early 70s rock through to punk, and um, got a job there for one year and was constantly late, even though I was getting all my work done every single day and there was, there was no problem with the work. 
but I got fired for not apologising for being late. <laughs> I love um, that story. They, <laughs> they didn't care what time I turned up as long as I apologised. Um, <laughs> um, how did you first get the job at The Face? Well, I had come across Nick Logan, who was the publisher and initial editor of The Face, when he was on a, working on a magazine called Smash Hits. A Smash Hits was an incredibly popular magazine here that printed all the lyrics of all the songs, plus did interviews. And it was incredibly ironic, but not to the people that bought it. They thought they were buying into this pop culture, but it was actually very tongue-in-cheek. And it had journalists like, um, I believe, the Pet Shop Boys were working on it. And so there was a lot of interesting people working on it. And before that, Nick had been working on New Musical Express, Enemy, which was the main rock and pop music newspaper that everyone would read um, on a weekly basis. So he was quite pioneering. And I went to see him to see if I could get a job working on Smash Hits. And he said, well, I think your work's great, but it's absolutely unemployable in terms of Smash Hits, but I'll keep it in mind. So when Nick left... Smash Hits, he then started up with about $5,000 of savings that he'd put away and launched The Face magazine. And I kept in touch with him. And about a year in, he, he invited me in to try a sample layout, which I did, which was a craftwork spread that I'd made for a constructivist. And he looked at it and said, ah, you, you can do something I can't do. Do you want to be art director? I said, sure not knowing what I was doing, never having been involved in magazine design before, actually hating typography at that point. So it was an interesting yes. challenge. We need we need to talk about that. I'll get to it in a minute because I have a whole series of questions about you hating typography back then. But at the time, The Face was a magazine that was run more or less democratically and for yourselves above all, in quotes. Um, there was little external expectation of what sells, and as a result, you became interested in the idea that people don't actually read words anymore so much as recognize them. How did that influence your design work? It was a kind of liberation. Um, my whole thesis had been really to try and understand why things exist in our design environments. And my questioning boiled down to two key questions. One was, is it functional? meaning do we need it in order to perform our actions in terms of reading or recognising? And is it there for reasons of taste and tradition? So what we did is we kept the practical side. For instance, you need to be able to know where an article starts. But the traditional thing would be it's a drop cap or it's a large word or it's a bold type. So that bit then we, could, we said we need to know where we begin something, but it could be anything. It could be a road sign. It could be a hole in the paper. It could be a small image. It could be um, something running upwards. So we split the taste and the aesthetics away from the function, and it allowed us to build a, a completely new aesthetics on top of it. And that extended to the headlines as well, because the headlines then became part of what we call wayfinding, signage, and we started to look at each page as a poster and understood that it was all about drawing 
the eye into different levels of meaning. And at the very top level, we were able to then link into the last hundred years of graphic design, really, and use that as as our source of inspiration, and then push it on. How could we experiment even further? How could we collapse letter forms to the point where is it still legible or not? So each month it became an experimentation. It was like publishing from a laboratory where experimental trials had been going on. Oh, okay, we've got to go to print now. So we were pushing that out and then moving on again to the next set of experimentations. Did you have a sense at that time how radical your design was? Not particularly. Um, There were some other great magazines around at that time. A year in to the face is when ID Magazine launched. Um, As I said, that was designed by Al McDowell and Terry Jones. We'd also had our experience of fanzines up to that point. So underground, um, there was a lot of photocopied magazines that were going around. And then there was Malcolm Garrett and his very underrated New Sounds, New Styles magazine, where he was doing a huge amount of experimentation with typography. So there was there was a kind of, especially in the middle of Soho, there was kind of, it was part of a culture. And the face is one of the ones that kind of broke out of that space. So I wasn't consciously thinking, I must make this radical. What I was thinking is, here's a platform and an opportunity to just experiment with editorial design and presentation and storytelling. You know, how do you take a reader on a journey in a different way? How do you look at juxtaposition of images in a different way? How do you work with photographers in a different way? How do you think of typography in a different way? And when you talk about democratization, that also means that as designers, we actually had the ability to do the typeface designs ourselves or use lecture set or photocopy down type that we found and and amended. So this was a golden age of handmade typography. Despite the enthusiastic, and that's probably an understatement, response to the work that you were doing at the time, you felt that your work for the design of the face was one of your biggest failures. Do you you really still think that all these years later? I think that the specific examples of experimentation we were doing in the first, say, four years of working on the face was so exciting and challenging, really hard work, risking failure as well as something actually working. But with the face, we had the opportunity to put it out there and see what would happen. But what happened that we were so unprepared for was that advertising and other magazines would start copying what we were doing. Instead of recognizing what we were doing as something that was experimental and exploratory and unfixed, um, trying to reveal new possibilities, they took this as style. And if they wanted to communicate to the same people who were reading the face, they needed to copy the style of the face. But we never intended that to be a stylistic statement. Some of the content of the face was talking about style, but it was also talking about reportage, 
It also had a lot of political opinion in there. And it did have fashion. It did have architecture. It did have design. It did have painting. It did have a lot of music, actually. It was fundamentally a music magazine more than anything. But people took the presentation of that to be a stylistic statement. So Wire, the band Wire, their first single was called 12XU, and it was less than two minutes. And they said that they would never make a song more than two minutes at that time because they said, once we've stated something, we don't see the point in repeating it. You know, once an idea is done, it's done. And the face was very much like that. So each issue would take some of the unexplored ideas from the issue before and try and push it a bit further on the next issue. But it was never intended to be a toolbox for anyone. So the failure was that we didn't really anticipate the fact that people would take our experimentation and turn it into a stylistic opportunity and a language. It's, it's, in art, it's called mannerism, where you just take the style of something and just repeat the style without understanding why and how it's been created. So it became normalised in, in, in a way. Yeah, well, not only normalised, um, there was a pressure for us to suddenly be inventive every issue. And if one issue we were exploring things which were less spectacular, we, we eventually we were being criticised for this. People would say, oh, the new issue of the phase isn't, isn't as radical as, as what I was expecting, as if that was a form of failure. Uh, so it's sort of radical as performance as opposed to radical as a, as exploration or investigation. Yeah, people had turned it into a kind of fashion statement and change itself became a style, ironically. And then I moved on to doing um, Arena magazine. And in doing Arena, I took absolutely the opposite position, which was to create a, a template, a style template, a style guide, and everything would stick to that. Um, and it wouldn't change from issue to issue. Unfortunately, I failed in that because after a while I got bored and started reinventing <laughs> from issue to issue, of course, as as we would. <laughs> I was going to say that didn't last long. <laughs> Although I've read that you said that your work on Arena um, Men um, was some of your favorite work of your career. What, how was that different in your mind? The original Arena magazine, we reduced everything to Hel uh, Helvetica and Garamond, plus a couple of uh, hand-drawn fonts, which we were still assembling by hand for headlines and section headers. But we wanted something that was stable. It was like, a, um, after the craziness of expectation on the face, this was like finding a park bench to just sit down and, and feel stylish. It was a, that was a deliberately style-focused magazine with reportage. And after a while, I thought, well, hang on a minute, Helvetica is it's so boring. And we thought, well, how can we start to make Helvetica em emotive and emotional? So then we started treating headlines more as visual poetry and seeing how Helvetica could lock up and create new shapes and new meanings by how the words had been connected or scaled. Or That was one of my favourite periods, actually, doing that, that some of those headlines. And when I came to do Arena on Plus again, which was actually in 2010, um, a good uh, 25 years or 24 years later, it allowed me to start from scratch, but using digital tools. We could actually create the typefaces digitally and then play with them on screen. 
sometimes print them out, cut them up, try again. And mixing that physical, handcrafted thing with the digital. Think about how space is used in magazines. Um, Using white space as an emotive force, impact, rhythm, taking people on cinematic journeys, how you, again, juxtaposition of images. So all of that stuff was a joy for me. Throughout history, women defied expectations and dared to be different. Join the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston, Massachusetts, to explore how art, fashion, and photography shaped their identities. Isabella Stewart Gardner, an enigmatic figure, used these mediums to craft her image. Her story is rich with defiance of gender and class norms, shrouded in tales and myths. Inventing Isabella features her portraits, clothing, and jewelry, revealing how she collaborated with artists to shape her public persona. The museum also highlights two contemporary artists, Fabiola Jean-Louise and Carla Fernandez. Dare to be different. Join us at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum to experience three powerful exhibitions and women. Inventing Isabella, Fabiola Jean-Louise, Rewriting History, and Carla Fernandez, Tradition is Not Static. On view now through January 15th. In addition to the many magazines that you've worked on, City Limits, Slay, Perlouis, Actual Arena, The Face, you've also worked on a number of newspapers. You redesigned many of the sections of The Observer, uh, the website for The Guardian, um, complete redesign of The Times. You've also worked with the BBC on their website. How do you regard those efforts And is there a difference when you can't experiment with the form as much as you can with a magazine? So the difference between those free-form, unbounded design approaches on magazines with something that's far more staid, conventional, mass public, like a newspaper, is that the magazines that we did had a loose structure in terms of form, Um, and grid, but allowed a lot more freedom in terms of expression and a varied voice, whereas a newspaper is is everyday. So what you need to do is build in some theatre props, basically. So we said to the Times newspaper, every day you're going out and it's a new piece of theatre and you have to perform this drama of explanation and conversation and journalism And what you need is a box of props and different set designs in order to express that difference. So you roll your sleeves up and you go out and you put a story together and you don't know exactly how that story needs to fit together. So we're going to give you a whole set of components and elements. And we're going to give you a a really clear structure of where they should sit. But then within that, you're free to be able to scale or use elements as you choose. So it wasn't like everything in its place and a place for everything, which was a kind of a Victorianism in England. And in a way, at the time, the, the Guardian newspaper had a lot more of that. It was quite fixed in terms of what you could do, as almost as a pre-runner of our digital spaces now, where it's content management systems, you can change the words, you can change the image, but it's still fundamentally the same layout for each each story was with the times we wanted to give them a lot more freedom and scope so we really focused on differentiation between types of content articulation 
of different types of content and a really, really clear signage and wayfinding system. Once they had that as the base and they knew that they could rely on that, everything else became then much more drama-based in terms of how you told stories. How much is experimentation still a criteria for you in your work? I think experimentation is vital for everyone. Um, I actually just had a conversation with my design team here and how things have shifted a bit that in the times when I was developing as a designer, experimentation was absolutely critical for me. I would frequently work 16, 20 hours a day, of which only a certain amount of hours was about getting client work done. The rest was experimenting and exploring and trying things that failed. And I think that's still so critically important, but our cultures have tended to shift towards a kind of 10 to 6 or 9 to 5 approach to to design. And a lot of younger designers tend to see it as a job more than a creative opportunity to explore new, potentially dangerous creative ideas. So that shift has been quite considerable, and we've seen it for the past couple of generations. What happened in the 80s was the shift away from culture as something cultural and threatening towards culture as something that you consume. And as soon as it became something that you consume, it became far more financially aligned. And its worth was based much more in terms of financial value than creative, cultural or or, or social value. And so a lot of designers are graduating thinking about, okay, I need to get a job. I'm going to be professional. I'm really good at getting a job um, and selling myself often more than their capability. So selling yourself, presenting yourself has become, I think, a a far more significant thing than going away and risking not getting a job by experimentation. Do you see that impacting the overall quality of not only the state of design, but also the possibilities for design? I think design has changed, and I'm not necessarily critical of that standpoint that younger designers are taking. I think designers in industry has changed. I think designers for its role in society has changed. We don't have those kind of underground punk movements now. Governments have been really good at keeping activism down, suppressing protest, almost criminalising protest. So we don't have those sort of platforms out there anymore. And the kind of media that we use increasingly, things like social media or uh, digital spaces or mobile-centric media, tend to be so engineering-based that there isn't much room for experimentation except in the content you develop to put on those platforms. So the layout and the context for where the content sits is much more rigid and regimented and doesn't allow that sort of freedom we had with layout that we used to have in in magazine design or poster design or record cover design. So the majority of people now are engaging with content via social media and via mobile, and there's no thinking about the 
environment in which that's being presented. What people want is just the simplest possible environment that is actually seamless with the machine that you're looking at it on. So it's become highly mechanized, highly engineering focused. And I'm just wondering if there are possibilities out there still where we can be much more experimental with the layout. And of course, you can't deliver 2 million global pieces of content in in a minute by experimenting with layout. That's never going to happen. Is there somewhere within our space, is it fashion brands or or media brands, you know, how do we think about that digital space as something that has the potential to be experimented with? It seems as if Instagram and Facebook and Twitter or X as it's now being called are highly, highly restricted in terms of the way in which you can share content, content in quotes, um, a word I loathe almost as much as assets. You've said that they feel like hospitals or airports. Do you see a way in which that can be overtaken? Is there a way to, to begin to experiment in those environments? I think those environments, probably not. I think that we are restricted to what we can put in those small windows. We can change the curtains um, or we can put on a bright shirt or um, we can do a funny dance. But, you know, those those windows are highly restricted and our behaviours are highly restricted as well. Um, you know, the swipe means that things have changed in terms of a temporal or a time basis. We spend less time engaging with content. Excuse the C word yeah. there. But, um, <laughs> the C word, absolutely. Exactly. Um, so we swipe. Um, we're looking to reward the reward centers in our brains. We're looking for content that will grab us, but not for too long, because then we want to move on to the next reward. So it's all about reward. And um, I heard an amazing quote the other day, and I can't remember where it's from, but it was quoted in The Guardian where they said that, Technology companies now trade in attraction. Mm. So what creates the attraction is a secondary concern. But the framework for creating that bait, as it were, has to be fairly reliable and not interesting in itself. And then it's all about how much content can you deliver, how quickly can you do it, and to how many people can you attract. I'm not being critical in terms of saying, yes, airport or hospital I'm just likening it to that kind of sense of efficiency more than anything else. You know, Instagram is not a sad place and it's not a threatening place. An airport is a bit more interesting because actually these are gateways to places. But I wonder how many of these windows actually take you to other places now. Whereas we used to get lost on the internet. I don't know if you remember, Debbie, but... You know, we would click a link and then we'd go to another link and then oh, and we'd yeah. get lost in this. Yeah, the wormholes. Yeah. The wormholes and we'd be gone. It's less easy to do that now because things are being clustered and these are kind of closed spaces quite often now. So, so our experience has changed completely in that sense. What I'm saying is that there may be other spaces that we can start thinking about this idea that historically graphic design is friction and we need this friction. Whereas most of our modern 
communication spaces are based on graphic engineering, which creates seamless journeys highlighted by some billboards. I read a really fascinating interview with you from 1992, which gave great insight into your early vision for graphic design. And one of the things that you talked about was typefaces and how everyone in the future would have their own. And it seems to me you were sort of predicting the notion of a visual selfie in many ways. Um, wondering if that might be a an antidote to the sort of highly engineered spaces that you're talking about. I think I was talking about this the other day, actually, when I was was in New York and uh, met with Dave Crossland, who's the director of Google Fonts. And we were talking about, you know, what what happens in the future and how does AI get included and incorporated. And we're talking about maybe one day we'll have our personal AIs that'll just produce our own typefaces that will be responsive to the mood we're in when we're creating content or talking, or even that the message itself will change typeface depending on the mood of the viewer. So AI probably will lead to the ultimate in customization as well as the ultimate in in control. Why did you hate typography while you were in school? I hated typography at school because it was being taught as something that had very, very strict rules, um, that it was an elite profession, that you had to study for years and years on how to cut metal type by hand, that it wasn't democratic, that you couldn't change the rules and explore different forms of communication. Therefore, it wasn't possible to make it contemporary at any point. So it was always dragging down our need for expression to something that was more archaic and traditional. And I hated that. So I, I, I thought at that time, well, if I'm going to be working in communication and I went into record covers, I was an image maker. So I would make images for the front and I would treat type as image. So... For me, the type became something more iconic and the words became more iconic and they became part of the image communication. This then really informed how I eventually moved back to working with typography, as we talked about with the Face magazine. I was still approaching it from the point of view of type is image and then looking at the layout as image construction itself. Do you still feel that typography is a hidden tool of manipulation within society? Typography is inevitably a manipulative form because the choice of typeface inevitably changes your response to any message. We seem to be going through a standardization right now where everything becomes Helvetica or even more extreme, everything becomes aerial. And this is because of the ubiquity and the need to reach everyone with every message means that you can't risk something going wrong. So um, it uses the lowest common denominator in terms of, of typography, which is aerial. So I think that there's going to be less and less experimentation going on on that kind of level. But still, the design of a typeface will completely influence how you respond to what's been written in that typeface. 
Recently, Johnson & Johnson redesigned their long-used script logo for a sans-serif, somewhat generic-looking identity. Um, One of the reasons I read that this change occurred was that younger people don't use or can't read script any longer. What do you think of that redesign? Honestly, I think I'm almost embarrassed to agree with everyone on this. That um, I've seen a lot of posts about this. It seems like a little bit of an easy target right now. So many other brands have done the same thing. So the people that have commissioned that have made, I think, a gross error because people don't read Johnson & Johnson. They recognize Johnson & Johnson. It's the same as the Coca-Cola script. You'll know what it is without having to read it. The brain connects it straight away. So I think that there's been a major mistake there. And, you know, Burberry went from quite a complex logo to a Helvetica-ish logo and has since created another version now which has a lot more personality built in. Because if you always try and use the lowest common denominator as the thing that's driving your aesthetic decisions, you will only ever be as present as the lowest common denominator. So I think all brands should redesign themselves in Arial. (laughs) Do you think that changing a logo has the same impact or relevance it once did? I think logos are secondary anyway these days. Um, secondary you know, to what? In, secondary to the C word. Um, mm. The asset, which you're talking about, one of which might be the logo, really are buried further down in, in the mix. The current idea of a brand, historically it used to be a triangle with the logo at the apex, and now it's a reverse. So the content is is your shop window now. And somewhere deep down, there's a logo that validates that content. But you're not buying a, a brand logo anymore. Um, maybe in streetwear or some other specific cases. But fundamentally, you're buying a brand narrative. And that brand narrative is almost inevitably going to be using the most commonly available tools that it can use. So it's a fully understandable situation as a response to the way people consume communication and content. But I do feel the loss of diversity in graphic form. It's the same as we're doing to the world in natural form, globally in language and cultural form, and in our industry in terms of brand complexity. Let's talk about your new book. It'll cheer me up. The graphic language. Oh, no, no, I'm super super happy. I'm I'm just (laughs) going to cut across this, Debbie. Um, No, I'm super happy. I mean, these are all challenges, but we do need to be constantly aware of of some things that are going on in order to think about ways that we can mitigate them and and bring creative, experimental. Yeah, I'm like, how can we experiment with these platforms that we all seem to be kind of obligated to be on now or confront the possibility that we'll no longer be relevant if we're not on them. So, you know, we kind of Mm. forced to participate on some level for our businesses or for our awareness, but 
most of the time it feels icky. And, you know, you mentioned before something about Instagram being happy. I mean, I don't know anybody that comes away from scrolling on Instagram for, for a half hour and, and feels good about themselves. So I, I'll, I'll push back on that one. But, you know, how can we participate in these frameworks in a way that doesn't feel so performative? Hmm. Um, yeah, I agree 100%. Um, it's what I talk about, the shift to instance from substance. Mm, um, yeah. And, you know, where do you get substance now? It's it's a very granular thing that's been happening. So the platforms have to be as, as uh, personality-free as possible. Um, otherwise, they become stronger than this granular content. So then the question is, where, where can we find those spaces to, to really be exuberant and joyful and experimental and adventurous? And um, it might be in books. So my, my new book, um, which took six years to put together, is something where I feel that I've really been able to kind of push the limits of, of what a book design can do at this point. Absolutely. Um, I've deliberately blurred the boundary between what is content in terms of images and what is content in terms of layout. What made you decide 30 years after the publication of the graphic language of Neville Brody 2 that the time was right for 3? When book 2 came out... It was a really, really interesting juncture. We'd only been working with the Mac, certainly in my studio, for, say, five years at the point where we started putting the book together. And the previous book was 100% non-digital. Um, it was all manual. It was all, all the fonts were hand-drawn. Everything was physical layout. And that came out in 1988, but from 1988, we shifted completely then to Mac digital production. So in 1994, it was, it was the first opportunity to really look back on that and look at the changes, look at the opportunities it had given us. Fuse had been launched in that time. And Fuse um, was your published. conference slash publication. Exactly. And it was a laboratory for experimenting with typography because typography had become democratized and less elite. Um, so it was such an exciting time, that five years. And looking back on it, a lot of the stuff that was done in graphic design at that time was actually far more radical and experimental than nearly everything that's going on now. And that five years, I think, was a really critical juncture. Uh, Font Shop had been launched as the first mass independent typeface retail space. Magazines were becoming independent because you could produce a magazine more easily. Digital printing was coming into space. We still didn't know at that point that the computers would be places to receive communication as well as to create communication. So this was sort of before the internet had taken over. It was way before social media, although... Oh, yeah, it was before uh, email, really. Well, yeah, it was around... Sort of around the same time. Same because, time, yeah. Thank because you Because Net, Netscape was there, Mozilla, yeah. and people would be putting pictures of their cats and back gardens and mums and 
um, announcing their birthdays. And, <laughs> well, we're um, still doing that on Facebook and Instagram. <laughs> we're still doing it, um, but we had we had more freedom in in 1994 than we do now. Yeah. Um, and then we had MySpace, which was the end of personal expression in terms of layout, and we're seeing some of that MySpace aesthetic and ethic coming into TikTok. You know, people decorating videos and putting their own fonts, and so in a way, TikTok is the new MySpace in that sense. And bring it on! I think it's, it's it's sort of a joyful explosion. But then, thirty years later, deciding to publish this new volume, um, there's a couple of reasons. One, I mean, I'd always wanted to do it. Um, I felt like the story wasn't complete. So, a never had the time. B felt I didn't have enough work to do a third volume. And three, we we really were not clear on what the narrative was in graphic design. This is a moment where it became quite valid to look back over that. When I started the book over that 25 years, it was then, but six years later, it's now 31 years um, or 30 years. And what's changed in that time is, as I, as I said before, a shift from graphic design to graphic engineering plus graphic art. So we're sort of looping to what was at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. Um, before graphic design really launched. And it was very technology-driven. All our big cultural changes have been technology-driven um, from the advent of halftone printing, um, which happened uh, around the end of the 19th century, colour printing, and then through moving image, you know, film, sound recording, all of these things created incredible explosions of creativity. And then coming all the way up to the Mac then that was a new explosion, hence book two. And then now we're in this this new phase of engineered environments and leading into AI. So it was important to go and put a, a flag in the sand and say, well, where are we right now? How have we got here? What possibilities are there? What can we take forwards? So in a way, it's an attempt to to start to try and understand some of that, like the history, the present and the possibility. In the book, you state that in your practice now, you've wanted to communicate to as many people as possible, but to also make a popular form of art that was more personal and less manipulative. And I'm wondering if that's possible. How, how do you make something more personal and less manipulative? I think by making it more ambiguous and more open. And a lot of my work is exploring the edge between something concrete and solid and something that has collapsed or is unclear or unstructured. So I'm always looking for that line between chaos and order because I think that's the line where things happen. That's that's the border zone. And those are constantly shifting. So our, our design practice has to constantly shift. And at the moment, every you know the engineering space is so large that we're crying out for this this other stuff that can actually question it and challenge it. So finding out where that edge is 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 still where my practice sits. And for me, it's a conversation rather than something with an intent. I'm surprised to hear that for some time after 
book two that you didn't feel like you had enough work for another monograph because it feels like book three at 300 pages or so is actually still leaving out quite a bit of the work that you did in that Mm -hmm. 30 years. And it's really a full book. It is overflowing in the best possible way. What do you mean by enough work? I think it was more, I couldn't find enough reason to publish. Mm. Certainly there's a lot of work, but what was the criteria for assembling it? What was the criteria for the clustering and the journey and the and the, the textual thinking behind it? And it would have just been a book of work, and that, that for me wasn't at all interesting. So what was the criteria? T- talk about that, the narrative arc of the book, because I think it's such an interesting way of presenting your work. The narrative arc is as interesting as the work. Well, my work has always been presented or, sorry, created as something that people could use to open up questions. I was never going to say, this is what it should be. I was always, let's think about what is and let's think about what could be. So I was always trying to use my work as maybe a catalyst for conversation and certainly the arc of the book starts with a historical piece from Adrian Shaughnessy following a, a really interesting viewpoint from Stephen Heller. And then the book launches with something that's quite abstract, which is the, the piece on Speak that um, immediately follows the introduction. And then from there, it's straight into editorial design. And editorial design for me is is a key point around how we can make our environments more expressive and how can we tell stories that extend outside of the boxes and the frames and then from that into fuse which is very much thinking about the languages we use as being embodiments of possible thinking and experimentation and other ways of thinking and so on the next chapter is around typographism which is the name we've come up with to explain what these kind of experimental supergraphic pieces of work throughout history can be brought under and some of those possibilities there they're like visual poetry or jazz for me and it, it really does sort of start posing this new question of what what could graphic art be and then through various other spaces typography political design commercial design trying to explore all the different facets of what it might be to be a graphic designer. And it's not as simple as it was when I was at art school. There's a lot of very different possibilities out there right now. And in a way, the book itself is is a cry for exuberance and failure and experimentation and embracing the accident and seeing where that leads. I I think that... One of the best descriptions that I've read of the book is you saying that you approach the design as something poetic and unfixed, blurring the lines between fixed space and abstract fluidity. And I think that's exactly what it does. And I think that's why it is so exuberant and optimistic in a lot of ways, despite the sort of notion that design has become more engineering. Um, I think you've been able to share the potential that design still has. Well, I I did a 
talk um, at AIGA last week, um, week before, which I know you were very present at, Debbie. Yes. Um, and my lecture was focused on the idea of what can we embrace? What can we touch or incorporate or hug in order to bring back the sense of exuberance and possibility and joyful experimentation? Where can we spark new life in our industry? It's, it's very easy to become the equivalent of in, insurance brokers in design or, or electricians or plumbers. And I'm not denigrating those jobs, but a graphic designer was always there to bring imagination to systems. So where can we start bringing that imagination back? One thing that I noticed on your website, which both surprised and excited me, was your reference to being a brand strategist now. I'm wondering, have you always considered yourself a brand strategist? Or is that something new? I've always considered myself a brand strategist. Right from the beginning, actually, when I was seven or eight years old, um, mm -hmm. I would play at home. This is after I actually learned to walk, finally. So I was walking. <laughs> I could use a pencil. Um, and <laughs> The whole and world started, in front of you. <laughs> uh, was, everything was possible then. And I actually, without knowing what I was doing, I was, I was creating brands at home. I was making paper lorries and transport trucks and buildings. And I was writing a brand name on them. So somehow branding was so deeply embedded in me and it connected for some reason. And I think I've always been thinking about that, that a brand is a piece of storytelling that it gets expressed as a visual symbol or nowadays in terms of a set of components. So what is the DNA of a brand? That DNA now is, is the typeface, it's the color system you use, it's your tone of voice, it's the way you scale or, or use your language visually and orally. So branding has shifted back from being the logo to all the other elements you use in order to tell your stories. And we start at the other end, of course. I've always been interested in starting off with a lot of research. You have to research. And then you have to stress test that. And then you have to look at the ambition and then bring those two together. And out of that comes your strategic thinking. And we used to be much more focused on the expression, which was at the far end is the last thing you did. But now our center of gravity has moved much further back on that, that chain of delivery, where we're thinking much more about strategy, system, and component. And the expression then comes, well, how does that all come together? We're living at a time where street brands are aspiring to become luxury brands and luxury brands are aspiring to become street brands. And I'm wondering how that impacted the work you did for the brand Supreme. That's some mm. of my favorite of your recent work. Well, Supreme came to us. They'd always been fans of the Face magazine. Uh, but what they took from the Face magazine was quite interesting. They, they took the political undertones of the face, that it was a call to action. It was a call to, to rebellion. So what they took was that kind of 80s statement of express yourself, be different, riot through how you present yourself to the world. 
And then they wanted somehow to link that to the un- underground sense of the Face magazine, but in a very modern way. So it was kind of reenacting that in a modern in a modern world. And streetwear is quite interesting. Yes, you're right. It wants to be luxury, and luxury wants to be streetwear. And it's interesting, my son is launching his own streetwear brand, and he doesn't want to be luxury. He wants to bring it back to the idea of personal expression, experimentation. Um, and, um, yeah, he's doing his first pop-up shop next month. So I'm a proud father, and he won't let me design any of it. I was That was what I was going to say, who designed his logo. <laughs> nope, he won't let me, he won't let me near it. <laughs> Uh, what is the name of the brand? Can you tell us? It's called Risha. Can you spell that? R-E-S-H-A. But this is a bit, I mean, obviously a bit premature. He's still setting all the stuff up. Of course, up, but, of course. Yeah. Well, it'll be very, yeah. very interesting to see. Neville, I can't let you leave without asking you about something that I learned for the first time reading your new book. I didn't know before it was revealed in Adrian Shaughnessy's essay that in 2003, you were flown first class to meet with Steve Jobs, who was considering you for the position of Apple's first ever global executive creative director. And it goes on to describe how when you first met with Steve, he asked you if you had any work to show him. So I'm wondering if you can talk about what that experience was like and then what happened after. Well, I was obviously uh, incredibly honored to be flown out. Um, uh, This was all very short notice, getting on a plane landing in San Francisco, being at Apple's office the next morning. I'd met Johnny Ive a number of times before, um, but had never met Steve Jobs and then was ushered into a small room with one table. And then Steve Jobs walks in. I was like, oh, Steve. And he said, um, he sat down and he said, have you brought any work to show me? And I said, well, you've flown me out here first class from London and you haven't seen any of my work. And he said, no. So I said, well, I happen to have a book of work with me, which was my second book. And uh, I gave it to him to look at, and he spent five to ten minutes looking through it and, and then leaned up and leaned into my space and said, this is just so much design masturbation, isn't it? <laughs> and I said, I said, no. And he said, well, Apple would never have used any of this. And I said, well, thank God you haven't paid for any of this. And we got on then like a house on fire. We had a great conversation for an hour where we talked about having children because I said he offered me the job and I said well I can only come out two weeks a month because my child is in London and then we had um, a conversation where he said to me something amazing which was he said having a child is like discovering the color blue and that's stayed as such a magical thought we know it's there but we've never seen the magical qualities of it so we had a great hour, and it seems that he was just testing my resolve. Then they flew me back first class. And any regrets not taking that job? To be honest, I think at that time, and I did ask Steve Jobs what the role of graphic design was at Apple, and he said, well, it's simply to be very clean and send, sell the product. Mm. And I thought, eh, that's not really my journey right now. 
So I think it would have been a financial bullet one, but a creative bullet dodged mm. in terms of where I don't think I would have had book three, to be honest. And I think that the world would be missing quite a lot if we didn't have not just book three, but the 30 years of work that is contained in book three. Thank you, Debbie. You're very kind. Neville Brody, thank you so much for making so much work that matters to so many. And thank you for joining me today on Design Matters. Thank you, Debbie. Neville Brody's new book is titled The Graphic Language of Neville Brody Three, with text by Adrian Shaughnessy. You can read lots more about Neville at brody-associates.com. This is the 18th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. The interviews are usually recorded at the Masters in Branding program at the School of Visual Arts in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Emily Wyman.